0: Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker.
1: And I'm Leon Getler.
0: And this is episode 32 in our series for 2016, and today's date is Friday, September the 9th. And Leon, who are we talking to this week?
1: Well, uh, this week we're going to have a fascinating interview with Marissa Sinzaki and Judy Watkins, and they're going to be talking to us about a new business messaging system called Slack. It's an American company and uh, this is their Australian operations and it's fascinating.
0: Yeah, opened in the old Carlton United Brewery building, historic building on Swanson Street in Melbourne and it's a gorgeous office, lovely open plan, beautifully done.
1: Yeah and and, uh, Slack is really interesting. It's a really interesting business because I mean you know the the key question is why have business messaging when you have uh, email but uh, That slack is actually built for teams And they explain why it works so well
0: Yep, it's a very smart company And uh, then of course we're going to be talking to Stephen Kukoulas
1: That's right, and he's going to be talking to us all about Australia's latest GDP figures Which are very, very solid, a 3.3% growth And he's going to give his analysis of what that means
0: Yep, also why the Australian dollar rises Every time the RBA drops the uh, interest rate
1: That's right, that's right But first of all, let's have a chat with Marissa Sensaki and Judy Watkins from Slack.
0: There's a new company in town in Melbourne called Slack and we're talking to the two principals, Marissa Senzaki and Judy Watkins, so welcome. I guess open by telling us what is Slack. It's around the world, it does all sorts of things but tell us about it.
2: Uh, Well Slack is a messaging app for teams basically. Um, We are reimagining the way that teams business teams communicate with each other and it essentially has all of your team's information in the one central place.
1: So tell us about Slack. I mean, it, it, uh, it's based all over the world uh, and it's just set up an office in Melbourne in March. So where else is it based?
2: So our head office is in San Francisco and we have uh, an office in Vancouver um, and another office in Dublin. And the reason we have offices in Dublin on the West Coast and down here, so we can provide round-the-clock support for our customers without people having to work silly shifts. You provide
1: messaging, but surely we have emails. I mean, why do we need a service like Slack? What does Slack offer, Marissa?
3: Yes, well, I think um, with Slack and just tech companies or any companies really in general these days, we're moving very quickly. Um, And what Slack enables is quick real-time communication that is just much simpler than email. And I think anyone who's worked in corporate America or been involved in long email threads um, and has seen all the reply all and people reply back and forth, it becomes a bit daunting to try to figure out where that communication started and what parts are necessary for you.
1: You do a lot of work in the area of customer experience, don't you?
3: That's all right. Um, that's
2: mainly what this office in Melbourne uh, is for. Um, the vast majority of our uh, staff here will be the customer experience team. Customer experience is really central to what we do at Slack. We see the customer as really the most important thing. It drives our business.
3: Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, you know, I've interviewed a lot of people and primarily right now focusing on building the customer experience team. And what a lot of candidates have voiced to me, their frustrations in their jobs, is that they bring up problems and issues to their manager about what the customer um, you know, would like to see in terms of feature requests and product improvement, and they escalate that and nothing happens. Uh, whereas at Slack, we really take that feedback seriously, and we're we're looking at that data on a week-to-week basis and making sure that it's involved in our future development.
0: Companies these days are very concerned about customer relations, aren't they? So where does a system like Slack help a company? Where does it encourage them in any way? Or how does it wind up with a better experience for a customer?
2: Uh, Well, it helps teams to communicate amongst themselves better um, in, in a more transparent way.
1: Can you actually download other stuff with the messaging? Like uh, software and stuff like that?
2: You can certainly integrate other apps that you might use in your business. So, for example, we use Zendesk for our customer support tool and we feed uh, information from Zendesk right into Slack. So it's all in the one place. It saves you having to go outside and into a different app. We have hundreds of apps that will integrate with Slack um, and people can customize their own. So you can make your own integrations depending on what you're your business workflow is.
1: Is there a big demand now for customer experience professionals?
2: Yes, um, absolutely. We see customer experience as a very specialist role. It's integral to what we do customer experience role is changing massively. I think it used to be seen that uh, customer support was like an entry-level position, um, a stepping stone onto something else, and we see it very differently. The customer experience role at Slack is um, a highly valued role,
3: it's varied, um, and it's important to us I would say that in general um, you know having good customer experience and interactions as a company is really important Um, and that's something that we've definitely um, showcased since day one in how we interact with our users Um, you know with social media these days if you don't get good service from a company that's being posted on Twitter that's being talked about everywhere Um, it's really important to listen to the people that are actually using your product
1: so you would see a whole raft of new professionals coming in through the ranks of uh, as customer experience professionals. That's a, that's a new growth sector.
3: I think it definitely can be, um, especially because for Slack, our customer experience uh, touches many different departments and facets of the product. So our agents are interacting with the engineers and reporting to them about different bugs that are coming through. They're talking to the product team about different features that our users want. Um, so it's really important to kind of understand the product itself and and how it develops and grows.
1: So, I mean, in terms of your own recruitment, I mean, what are you looking for?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. I think that we tend to look at the soft skills a lot. Hard skills are things that can definitely be learned. Um, we really encourage learning and training on the job. But having someone with a high, um, you know, emotional intelligence who can really relate to people on all different levels. This. This job is interacting with people all over the country, so you need to have that ability to connect and communicate.
2: I think also um, we... We take a very different approach to support at Slack. It's a very personalised approach. We take every opportunity to engage with our customers and to delight them. So we like our customer experience agents to really use their creativity and imagination on making that great impression with a customer. So people from creative backgrounds do very well at Slack.
0: Are you principally or the users principally on mobile devices Use an app? Would that be on a desktop? No, probably not.
2: Both, actually. Yeah, we have a, we have desktop apps and we have mobile apps as well.
0: So where do, how big is the market in Australia at the moment? People have been using Slack before you set up here, haven't they?
2: That's right. We have tens of thousands of Australian companies using Slack right now.
0: Beyond the app, there's a, day, a service charge for the use of the service?
2: The Slack service is free, actually. Um, it's We do have paid tiers, um, but uh, you're free to use Slack for free for as long as you wish.
1: What types of companies are using Slack?
3: I would say all types of companies. Um, obviously, being started in Silicon Valley San Francisco, um, we really grew kind of organically just by word yeah. of mouth through a lot of different tech companies. And um, now we service, you know, a lot of the Fortune 500s. Um, we have non-profits that we work with, government. So it really can be used across all different types of sectors.
1: Not just tech, not just the tech industry? Correct. Tell us about um, your team in Melbourne. I mean, how big is it and uh, how, how is it expanding?
2: Right now, we have 29 people working in the Melbourne office. Um, so since January, um, we've grown to 29. Uh, this space here will contain about 70 uh, when we're full. Our team here in Melbourne are mainly customer experience, and that really means um, working with our customers to solve any problems they have, to answer their questions, help them get the most out of the application.
0: Help desk, as in many respects, it is. Yes, Judy, Marissa, thank you very much for your time.
3: Thank you. Thank you.
0: I think Slack is anything but slack. Frankly, um, look very smart to me.
1: Oh yes, and it actually makes sense. It would work beautifully for teams because email is limited.
0: It's not 100% secure at all. You know, there it is and Slack's moved into Australia and it's all looking pretty good. Uh, and so now, Stephen Kukulis.
1: Stephen Kukulis. today's GDP figures are quite extraordinary. They're showing the fastest growth in four years and... uh that's it's quite extraordinary. The economy grew a solid 0.5% in the second quarter, 3.3% over the year. It's, a, it's the fastest pace of annual growth in four years. How do you account for that?
4: It's a good result. There are a few quirks, as there often are in these GDP numbers, the components that go up to make that quite impressive 3.3% annual growth rate. The main issue for me looking at these numbers is the contribution to economic growth from export volumes now that's not to say export volumes are bad in fact export volumes are good but in the case of these particular numbers there's a really big skewing towards you know tonnages of iron ore and coal and the cubic meters or whatever of uh, natural gas and these sorts of things so in a sense bottom line gdp real gdp the amount of stuff that we're producing is growing at a healthy pace but approximately 60% of the increase in GDP that we've seen in the last year has been just simply the conveyor belts full of coal and iron ore dumping it onto ships, which uh, doesn't really add a lot to uh, the rate of job creation. So we still have a weak jobs market, and nor does it add to inflation pressures. And we just have to look at the most recent inflation numbers to see that inflation is very, very low. So that's not to completely disregard the numbers because they are good. They're they're lovely to see. I like seeing GDP growth above 3%. But there is a quirk there that says to me that it's perhaps masking the fact that the non-mining parts of the economy are only growing at about 1.5% in annualised terms.
1: Right. And, of course, uh, this uh, strong GDP growth is not translating into new jobs. Uh, I mean, over the past year, it's largely been part-time jobs coming onto the market, which has kept the unemployment rate at
4: 5.7%. That's the critical issue. And the hours work that we've been seeing from the workforce has been fairly moderate too. So uh, that skewing to part-time jobs, I think, is really a function that the non-mining parts of the economy, the non-export parts of the economy, they're the ones that are feeling the pain. And they're the ones where the price pressures, that is the rate of inflation, is being well contained. So... It's a question that, uh, again, we always welcome the exports of volumes of our bulk commodities. That's great. But it is not the sort of economic growth that leads to the usual implication when we're getting a couple of quarters in a row now, 3% or more than 3% GDP, where you'd be saying, well, look, um, the economy is strong. It's recovering. We're doing quite well because of this quirkiness of the export sector. So, in a sense... When you overlay what's happening in the other indicators of the economy, things like retail sales, things like the non-mining investment parts of the economy, and even the mining investment parts, you can see the weakness occurring there too. So it's really one of those ones where the, the numbers will be dissected long and hard by many economists, by the Reserve Bank themselves, to see just where the pressures are.
1: Right, right, right. And of course, I mean, you've got, say, boosted uh, consumer confidence, but that's not yet translating through into spending uh, for as shown by the retail figures.
4: Indeed. So we've still got the cautious consumer and the consumer's just sort of holding back on some of their expenditure, a little unclear about what's happening uh, to the economy. There's still this job insecurity. And I think you made the point before that in the last year or so, there's been a very, very strong bias towards part-time employment. And And that's fine. It's a sign of a flexible labour market. But what it means for household income growth, uh, and of course household income growth does drive how much consumers actually spend in the economy, it means that the amount of dollars and cents that people are taking home is clearly being held back by the fact that they're working fewer hours. So it's this uh, cycle where we want to see the uh, labour market side of the economy improve. 5.7% unemployment, it's not bad, But it's certainly a long way from where we were prior to the GFC when we got down to 4%. And I think this is the issue that the Reserve Bank and others will be looking at, that we do need to see the other more job-intensive parts of the economy expanding uh, at a solid pace to just ensure that the unemployment rate falls, incomes start to rise, and we get the self-fulfilling, I suppose, spiral upwards in terms of economic growth.
1: Now, the strong economic growth also raises questions, doesn't it, about the necessity of further interest rate cuts to stimulate the economy?
4: It does indeed. That's an excellent point. I think I don't know whether the RBA would have known these numbers yesterday at their board meeting, but um, even if they had a rough inkling that these numbers were going to be quite respectable, it just really locks in this situation that the RBA has probably done enough. They were cutting rates, don't forget, in May and August because of the very low inflation numbers that we were seeing. But from here on in, you'd think that they're going to be quite content to sit back. 3.3 GDP, even if it is focused on mining exports, is still a good rate of growth.
1: Right. And of course, the other issue that comes into the equation is whether the Fed raises rates either in September or December.
4: Indeed. And we're unsure about that. They had a slightly less positive jobs number last week in the U.S., Look, Janet Yellen has told us, and she mentioned at the Jackson Hole Conference uh, a couple of weeks ago, that there is this tendency or this bias, if you can call it that, towards wanting to hike interest rates, to re-normalise, I suppose, the level of interest rates in the US economy, because it's growing, it's doing reasonably well, and I think the Fed wants to keep hiking, if they do, then of course that would be good news for the global economy. It'd be good news for Australia as well, but we just need to see that confirmation from the Fed that it's got the conviction, I suppose, that the economy can withstand a creeping up in the in the Fed funds rate and official interest rates in the US. It'd be good news if it happens, but it also might be uh, having the second round effect, I suppose, of pushing the Aussie dollar back lower. Which, from what the Reserve Bank is saying, is they still would prefer to see because. Commodity prices, while they're off the lows at the beginning of the year, they're still relatively weak.
1: Which would uh, further add to the case for the Reserve Bank not to do another interest rate cut.
4: Well, if the Fed hikes, yes, indeed. It'll be for the RBA and Philip Lowe, who starts his job in a couple of weeks, he may have the first few months, in um, fact, the first six or months or longer in the new role as not doing anything on monetary policy. I'm sure he'll be busy elsewhere, but maybe it's going to be the RBA's on hold for, for many months to come.
1: Now, the RBA statement was fascinating yesterday. I think it ran to something like 375 words was my reading of it, and uh, that's the shortest <laughs> statement I've, I've I've remember on record, and uh, it gave no indication of monetary policy at all.
4: It gave no clues. Um, look, they only cut rates a month ago. There's not been a lot of new information, and that was obvious from what they were saying, or the information on the economy that has come through has been broadly consistent with their take on things. So they're going to be very content to just sort of sit tight, as we were saying before, that uh, uh, the statement was saying, look, we, we, we don't want to change rates and uh, the market better get used to that. We want to see how the economy pans out. Let's have a look at the next inflation number for sure and see whether there's any evidence of a turning point in inflation there. But the bottom line would be that they're really happy to be seeing this sort of growth. Obviously, they prefer the unemployment rate to be a bit, little bit lower, but for now, they're just going to be sending a signal that things are about right. Monetary policy is very stimulatory. There's no question about that. And perhaps we just need to be patient before we can see another one or two quarters of this sort of GDP growth rate, but perhaps with a more uh stronger bias towards the domestic economy rather than exports.
1: Now, I have to ask you one final question. Australia's now been growing for something like a 100 quarters without... A recession of 25 years which is quite extraordinary but when do you expect these strong economic growth figures to translate into critical issues like employment as in creation of full-time work and wages growth
4: well maybe we need even stronger growth than this to deliver that pick up in the labor market conditions both as you said in full-time jobs and a lowering the unemployment rate and at the moment you know, the, the, the interesting thing is that these are June quarter data. Here we are in early September, so already a lot of water's passed under the bridge on uh, on the economy since then. And uh, interestingly, if we look at things like the labour-intensive parts of the economy, things like retail sales, they've actually been quite subdued. So it's sort of the case where I wouldn't be at all surprised if the next quarter or two we see annual GDP holding you know, close to 3%. I think we've got a big number dropping out of the year-on-year run rate next time, so we'll probably be a little bit below 3% when we get the September quarter numbers. But if retail sales are subdued, that labour-intensive part of the economy's, you know, muddling along, then you just don't get the employment response. We need to see the breadth of this expansion being more skewed to the domestic economy, more skewed to where the jobs are actually being created, rather than, as I said, just that conveyor belt churning out tons and tons of iron ore and coal that's still a good thing but it's probably not the driver of jobs and uh, wages growth that we'd like to see
1: Simon Cools thank you very much for your time thank you Leon so what do you think about that uh, Leon well i think i think it's good I, you know he said the numbers really really solid but as he points out the thing is a lot of it comes from that conveyor belt of coal and iron ore and uh, he said something like 60% of it's from that. And the, the problem is a lot of that isn't flowing through to the real economy where there's wages where there's wages growth and job creation. And that's an issue.
0: Yeah. And, of course, real wages haven't risen in, what, three, four years, have they?
1: That's right. Well, they've been pretty, pretty slack. And uh, at the same time, it also raises questions of um, whether the RBA should keep cutting interest rates. And we deal with that. It was a fascinating interview, I think.
0: Anyway... Now the news, Leon.
1: Well, Gary, China has been put on notice over its creation of a worldwide steel glut with a group of 20 leaders agreeing to establish a global forum to monitor Beijing's stated commitment to cut production. An agreement to establish a global forum on excess steel capacity was contained in a lengthy communique from the G20 in Hangzhou in China on Monday. Now, last year, Gary, China exported more than 100 million tons of steel. That's almost 13% of global output. And European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker called on China to establish a mechanism to monitor the situation, saying it was crucial that China acted. I think that's absolutely important. But uh, I mean, it was interesting that uh, Malcolm Turnbull of the G20 was also urging urging a bit of moderation, given that Australia is providing all the iron ore that helped China make that steel.
0: Chinese mills were going to make steel, and if they couldn't sell it locally, they're going to export it. And that, of course, distorted the world market.
1: That's right. That's right. And uh, and uh, so, and who do you think is helping them produce it?
0: <laughs> we are. Don't say it out loud.
1: Now, Gary, the price of iron or oil jumped after the world's two biggest oil producers, Saudi Arabia and Russia, signed a pact to stabilize the price, and the price of Brent crude rose by four percent on the announcement made by the country's energy ministers, Alexander Novak and Khalid Al and gains were subsequently paired to stand 1% higher at $47.31 a barrel. Now Gary as you know the oil price crashed to its lowest level in nearly 13 years at the start of 2016 due to a production glut. It still sits far below the $110 barrel recorded only two years ago. Now Saudi Arabia and Russia put out a statement saying they plan to support the, what they call the stability of the oil market and ensuring a stable level of investment in the long term. And the, but it, what's important Gary is a statement stopped short of free production, although Al-Quala said he was optimistic the producers and algiers would come to an agreement when they meet later this month. But Gary the oil industry is really sceptical. It says an agreement is unlikely and all the announcement did was raise prices. And I reckon that's right Gary, because I can't see Saudi Arabia and Russia agreeing to anything given that they're fighting a proxy war in Syria.
0: Absolutely. It's a a hot shooting war and they're on different sides.
1: That's right. And of course uh, Russia is, is a big ally of Iran which is an enemy of Saudi Arabia So, you know, watch that space, Gary
0: Absolutely, it's pretty hot space
1: Now, in another sign of the impact of the Brexit Vote, the chairman of one of the world's most Prestigious insurance firms, Lloyds of London Has warned that the company Always associated with the city might have to relocate or certainly relocate some of its operations. And speaking at Lloyd's annual dinner, company chairman John Nelson said Lloyd's could move some of its operations to other parts of the European Union if it lost access to a single market. Now the crucial part of the equation for Lloyd's, he said, was the so-called passporting rights that allow UK companies to sell services across the EU. Now, Lloyd, now Nelson stressed that Lloyd's would continue to be based in London. But, Gary, you'd have to say the prospect of insurers and Lloyd's wouldn't be the only one, moving some of their operations to the EU would undoubtedly have an impact, because the insurance sector employs about 50,000 people it generates more than a fifth of London's gross domestic product.
0: It does indeed, and I think if you listen to what, um, sort of read between the lines of what Theresa May's been saying in the last week or so, about Brexit meaning Brexit, I, I still very much question whether it'll happen in the simplistic way that we're currently seeing it. Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley have upgraded their growth <laughs> forecasts for Britain's economy, and um, Theresa May's doing a deal with Japan and uh, and is also quietly disavowing uh, many brexit promises already so uh, nothing's going to happen for at least two years if it happens then at all
1: uh perfidious and again Gary
0: absolutely and uh, of course Theresa may ain't stupid
1: that's right Gary in his final meeting as governor of the Reserve Bank of Australia Glenn Stevens kept the cash rate unchanged at 1.5 percent after rate cuts in May and August this year economists and financial markets are in were anticipating the whole decision so no surprises there and all also, good news though, after posting a, a 0.8% fall in July, job advertisers rebounded according to the latest figures from the ANZ. The ANZ job advertisers series shows job advertisers bounced a solid 1.8% in August. They're now up 8% over the past year. And I reckon that's going to flow through the jobs figures later on.
0: Well, one would hope so because, uh, you know, we need the jobs, particularly as unemployment uh, is going to rise because of the loss of the uh, automotive industry.
1: That's right. Now, house building has slumped, sending the construction industry into contraction in August. The Australian Industry Group Housing Industry Association Australian Performance of Construction Index fell 5 points to 46. Now, of course, anything below the 50 mark is a contraction. And the data shows that house building plummeted 13.8 points to 41.1. Now, There was growth in other sectors, like growth in apartment building was up 8.8 8.8 points to 56.8. Commercial construction was up 1.4 points to 53.2. And engineering construction was up 6.9 points to 55.5. But that wasn't enough to offset the slump. And house building is really important. And as the HIA says, we don't have a plan B for house building.
0: No, and it's a big a big
1: employer. Now after three months of growth, Australia's uh, service sector has contracted to its lowest level in nearly two years. The Australian Industry Group's uh, Australian Performance of Services Index has fallen 8.9 points to 45 that's the lowest reading since november 2014 and of course again anything below the 50 point level indicates contraction all five sub-indices fell below 50 points and into contraction in august that includes sales new orders, employment stocks, supply deliveries. And what's worrying, Gary, is that transport and storage hit a record low of 32.9 points. And that worries me, Gary, because transport is an indicator of how production trade is going because it shifts goods around the country. Weak income growth in a low interest rate environment is seeing consumers ditching food for clothes, according to the latest data from Deloitte Access Economics. And Deloitte says the value of non-food turnover, like clothes and uh, homeware increased by 3.4% over the year to June 2016 in real terms. And that was way more than food turnover growth, which was 0.7% for the same period. I reckon that's really bad news for the supermarkets, Gary.
0: Bad for Coles and Woolies and probably good for Aldi because people are being very price conscious.
1: That's right, indeed, indeed. Now... Australia's economy grew a solid 0.5% for the second quarter, as we discussed with Steve Coolis, and 3.3% over the year. That's its fastest pace of annual growth in four years. Household and government spending, public investment, inventory drove growth in the quarter, while continuing falls in private investment and a drop in net exports weighed, according to the ABS. Now, the strong economic growth is also likely to spark questions about the necessity of further interest rate cuts to stimulate the economy. Now, the Turnbull government is fast-tracking a free trade agreement with Britain, British Prime Minister Theresa May says a priority now is to clinch a deal with Australia. She talked to Mr Turnbull about the deal in the G20 meeting in China. Now, because the EU trade deals are negotiated through Brussels, Britain is totally unpracticed in these negotiations so Trade Minister Stephen Ciobo was in London this week and as a gesture of goodwill he's offered the assistance of expert Australian trade negotiators and Australian Britain have set up a bilateral trade working group. Although the group's going to meet twice yearly from two, uh, 2017, a final agreement won't be happening anytime soon because Britain will have to put in place trade agreements with the European Union and there are a whole lot of complexities that we need to sort out first Gary
0: Yeah and of course it's something the EU won't be very happy about because we buy an awful lot of European cars.
1: Well, and the other issue too for the EU is the EU is saying, well, Britain should be ne- shouldn't be negotiating this while it's still a member of the EU.
0: Perfidious Albion, dear boy. <laughs>
1: That's right. Now, uh, the competition regulator will look at declaring a wholesale domestic mobile Roman service, threaten Telstra's monopoly on rural mobile service, and this measure would enable mobile service providers to provide coverage for their customers in areas where they don't have their own network. And the strong competition consumer commission says mobile com- coverage has become increasingly important and there's an issue about coverage and a lack of choice in some regional areas but Telstra's hit back it's warned that declaring mobile roaming would hit network investing by uh, removing incentives for operators to invest in increasing their coverage and it's a fraught issue Gary.
0: It is indeed and it's very difficult technically as well because a lot of the more remote parts of the country will need satellite and I'm not quite sure how they're going to handle that.
1: No and th- that's going to be interesting to watch and I think too, it's uh, this, there's a huge issue there also about uh, about network investment, and, and uh, but but it does tell us of how important uh, mobile roaming has become for the yeah. economy.
0: Yeah, and it's uh, a lot of it's data, not uh, not just voice calls, and that's very that's
1: important. right. And it's becoming more it's becoming more complex. But as you know, Gary, the ACCs had two other inquiries into this, and it didn't go ahead before.
0: No, well, that's right, but we're, something has got to be solved, nonetheless.
1: In the eastern Chinese city of Hangzhou on Tuesday, we witnessed a signing by Ostrade of an agreement with Alibaba, and this strategic collaboration enables more businesses to sell goods like fresh food online. And Alibaba markets have more than four. 134 million users and takes 12.7 billion orders every year and there's growing interest in oats and cereal, beef, dairy, natural skincare, and active wear product in, from Australia. Better still, an Alibaba hub office is being planned to be built in Melbourne by the end of the year to support local operations in Australia and New Zealand Gary.
0: Yeah, they've, Alibaba's been interested in Australia for, to my certain knowledge, something like 10 years. I think they were knocked back a few times, weren't they? Uh, yeah, they were. Um, Jack Ma wanted to come to Australia, got knocked back seven times. Nobody realised that he was uh, one of the richest, most influential men in China.
1: Now, you've met Jack Ma, haven't you?
0: I have interviewed him. I met him in Hongzhu. He's a remarkable man. He's, <laughs> he was made redundant as a school teacher and he decided to found Alibaba.
1: What an extraordinary story. Now, speculation is high that JB Hi-Fi is going to launch a $300 million equity raising to fund the acquisition of rival White Goods Retail, the White Good Guys. And JB Hi-Fi would be expected to pay between 850 million and $900 million for the acquisition, which would significantly expand its footprint, because Acquiring the good guys would boost JB Hi-Fi's sales from $3.9 billion to almost $6 billion, nearly double them, at $110 million to earnings before interest tax depreciation and amortisation. Lifted total, total store footprint by 100 stores to 294. But JB Hi-Fi came out to the market and denied this in a statement to the Australian Securities Exchange. It said it has made no decision nor has it entered into any agreement. But it said the company is continuing talks with the good guys about an acquisition. So they're still in the race to get it. So watch that space, Gary.
0: Yeah, very much.
1: Yeah. Now, Pizza Hut Australia has been acquired by Sydney private equity firm Allegro for an undisclosed sum following a deal with the company's US-based owner Yum! Brands to challenge market leaders Domino's. Now, Allegro has brought in former McDonald's Corporation's executives, and this deal will sell Allegro teaming up with local Pizza Hut management to buy the master franchise agreement for Pizza Hut in Australia. And the new management team will be meeting with franchisees over the next few weeks to detail their plans for the business, and their plans expect to include opening new stores, bringing in digital changes and boosting market share. And I reckon the digital changes will be massive because of the competition they're going to have with Domino's, which controls 50% of the market. Let's just look at what happens there. And finally, Gary, data center company NextDC is raising $150 million to build a second Data centre in Sydney was its existing data centre now reaching capacity constraints. I think it's operating at about an 82%. And next DC, next DC expansion because of booming levels of demand for cloud services. Statement to the market: Next DC said it's looking at several potential sites for its S2 centre, which will double the size of its first Sydney data centre by 30 megawatts. And the current Sydney centre, known as S1, as I said, is operating at 82% of its capacity. And the S2 site is expected to be completed in the first half of 2008.
0: Big investment, of course, a lot of money.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because um, Greg Scroggie, the next 2 chief executive, who we've talked to before on Talking Business, I might add, he said uh, demand was high enough to warrant that level of capital investment. And he said, we're the Switzerland of the IT industry as a home to all these enterprises. As the online world continues to grow, we're going to continue seeing this massive boom in the digital economy. And that's it for this week, Gary. And next week, we're going to be having a chat with James Kissel, who's the director of marketing, at uh, WFS, it's Workforce Software, and that's a company that uses technology to create flexible working arrangements for parents and others with domestic responsibility that make working a standard 9-to-5 pattern impossible or inconvenient.
0: Good, Leon, sounds interesting, in fact very interesting, and I look forward to hearing it.
1: In the meantime, keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBZZ or on Facebook. Stay safe, and we'll talk to you next week.